Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We're just kind of working through the foundations as you guys are wrestling with things in your focus groups, which we do, as there's room for any question, for any wrestling, for any doubts, for wherever you are in life, there's room for that in our groups. That's what we want to do. Help each other walk that path. Encourage one another to have faith. It's okay. There's nothing that's off limits there as long as that's the goal. Or as long as we're even, the goal is even to see if that's the goal. (laughs) But as you do that, it's important as you wrestle with things that you have solid ground to stand on to wrestle with. And so on Sunday nights, that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, possibly months, is spending time talking about the things we know for sure. And tonight, we're going to talk about the nature of God. So we're going to start uh, with something really small. Obviously not. We're going to start with the biggest thing we can, but it also is the foundation. Um, the, The point is that our faith and the gospel, it begins with God and it ends with God. And it doesn't really start with us. And that's one of the really important things to understand, that our faith doesn't even start with us. It starts with the recognition that God is the initiator. God is the creator. Without God, nothing of it, nothing happens, right? We don't even exist without God. And even the gospel itself is initiated by God because of who God is, not because of who we are. And so it's important to know who is God, what is God. And of course, that's too big to cover in a Sunday night. So we're going to do it in two nights. No, that's not true either. It's too big to cover in two Sunday nights. We are going to do two Sunday nights on this, but it's, it's too big. There's no way. This is part of the lifelong pursuit. And there are a lot of questions and uncertainties about God, but what are the things we know? What are the things that God has chosen to reveal to us with enough certainty that we can stand on that? That as we wrestle with the other very serious questions, like if God is everything he says he is, then why, does, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why specifically in your life did things happen the way they happened? That's a question that God wants you to wrestle with in your group. It's not one he wants you to ignore. It's one he wants you to embrace because that tension can lead you to an even deeper understanding of who God is and of who you are. But you can't even begin that wrestling if you don't start with some foundational questions about who God is, some foundational certainties. I mean, if God is not good or if we don't know that God is good, then the question of why evil exists in the world is not a question. (laughs) The answer is because God isn't good. But if God is good, then you have a platform from which to wrestle. Then you have a platform from which to explore. You have a platform from which to go. So we're going to walk through just kind of what some of the foundational points are. What are some of the things that we know for sure are true? Let's start with Romans 1. I mean, there's a lot of places we could go. Uh, Not surprisingly, The entire Bible is about God. You probably knew that. Even those books, even the one book which doesn't mention God uh, in uh, Esther turns out to be all about God. You probably knew that. So there's a lot of places we could go to begin. We're just going to start here in Romans 1 because I want us to think about something that he says here as we get introduced into who God is. Paul says this. He says the wrath of God. First of all, yeah, we can acknowledge God is capable of wrath. So we know God can feel emotion. And one of those can be anger. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness, godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So one of the things scripture says is that God made himself clear and visible. And this might surprise you because one of the things that we often complain about is why doesn't God just come out and write himself in the sky or write in the clouds that, hey, here I am. And Paul's point is actually the fact that there is a sky, the fact that there is clouds, that is exactly what God did. He wrote, here I am by creating everything. The very nature of that we live, the very fact that there is existence and the very fact that our existence is the way it is, that there are certain things we can tell from nature that reveal to us the kind of God we serve. And you know what? It's not just Paul who says this. Everybody from Socrates to Emily Dickinson to Van Gogh have expressed this same feeling that God could be seen from his creation. That there were certain things we knew. Socrates points out that we know that God is orderly. Why? Because nature is orderly. That doesn't mean there's not any chaos, but the fact that science is a thing only works because nature is orderly. If nature followed no laws, if it was simply chaos, then science would mean nothing. You could never repeat anything. There would never be anything to learn. And what we take for granted that nature is orderly, many people before us have seen as proof that it was created by an orderly God. Socrates goes further. He makes all sorts of interesting conclusions about who God is, many of them very much in line with Scripture. Interestingly enough, a, a Greek who never saw the Hebrew Scriptures, so far as we know, comes to many conclusions that the Hebrews had revealed to them by God himself. And he saw it all through nature. And he said that God was clear, had revealed himself. If you're not aware, one of the reasons that Socrates was executed was for what they called atheism. But that doesn't mean he didn't believe in any God. It means he didn't believe in enough gods. He believed that there was one and that all the Greek gods were not gods. And so they executed him for that. And he came to that conclusion because of nature. And this is what Paul says. There's certain things we can tell from what is seen that tell us about what is not seen. The other thing that tells us about God is that he's not seen, that he's invisible, that we can see the things he does, but he's not like you or me in that he's material and physical and visible. There's something different about him in that respect. He goes on, Paul goes on in Romans to say this, for although they knew God, meaning everyone, humanity, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And he's talking about the forever historical truth that for some reason people want to deny the existence of God. Paul says God is clear He's obvious, but the reason we don't see him is not because God isn't clear and not because we're not logically working it out. It's because we don't want to see him. It's because there's something in humans that don't want to be subject to an immortal God. Because it seems to us at times to take away our freedom and our agency and our autonomy and our power. But what Paul points out, ironically, is that when we refuse to worship the God who is God, what happens to us is not that we become free, autonomous, fully powerful, functioning agents, but quite the opposite, we end up submitting to things even smaller, to images 
and idols. And you may say, yeah, but we've moved past that. We don't worship idols and images anymore. And yes, that's true. We don't worship these wooden things anymore. But it's very hard to look at the way America reacts to celebrities and politicians and certain scientists and certain gurus and certain business leaders of all kinds and not recognize that there is still this innate desire in us to follow somebody, to worship something. There's something in us that wants to adore. There's something in us that wants to worship. And Paul says, denying God makes us stupid. (laughs) That if we don't look at the world and see that God is behind it, if we aren't willing to accept that we are not God, then it makes us stupid and we become even less able to see God. So if it's true that God reveals himself to us, that God has made himself clear, and I would go further and say not only has he made himself clear. See, Paul is talking about here in Romans, he's talking about people who do not have the scripture. He's talking about people who don't have the revelation that the Israelites have. That's why he uses the phrase they. He, does, he means as opposed to the Jews he's writing to, those Gentiles, they don't have the scripture, but what Paul says is that doesn't get them off the hook because God's been clear even through people like Socrates. But for the Israelites to whom Paul's writing, there's even more. There's the direct revelation of scripture. There's the fact that God spoke to them and spoke through other people to them and had for thousands of years up to the point of, of Paul spoken to them through people and through the law and through revelation and through miracles and through prophets. And so we have all of that. And as we take all of that, there were so many ways we could talk about the nature of God. God is infinite. That's one thing he is. And being infinite means, where do you start? At what side do you start exploring an infinite puzzle? Which piece do you start with? Where are the borders? You know, when you do a jigsaw puzzle, you start with the borders. Where are the borders on an infinitely sized puzzle? Well, they aren't, are they? So we can start anywhere. But we're going to go for the things that God seems particularly concerned about. The things that I think we know both from our experience with the world itself, as well as from the things that are revealed in Scripture, and the things that could or could not be, that might or might not be, the things that we argue about even in the church because we're not sure. We're not going to argue about those tonight. We're just going to stick with the things that God seems to be concerned about making sure we know beyond question. So let's start with what we know. Even as Paul indicates here in Romans, one of the first things we know is that God is spirit. I think it's important to start with that fairly simple, evident, important note. And one of the reasons it's important to start, I think, with this is because as obvious as this is, it's very strange that we live at a time in which people forget that God is neither male nor female. We actually find ourselves engaged in arguments about whether to worship God means to worship a male. Male and female are terms that describe humans. God is neither male nor female. God does not have a body. God is spirit. He is something else. To describe him as either male or female is to miss him. In fact, in Genesis, it says that God created male and female. In his image, he created them. So both male and female reflect the image of God. Not one more than the other, but both. 
Now you may ask, why does it use the term he, and why does it describe him in masculine terms? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's cultural, but certainly possible. I would just argue you kind of have to pick something, and culturally that made the most sense. Now you may argue, but God is often described in masculine terms, and you're right. But you know what else is true? God is often described in feminine terms. <laughs> that is also true. We're told not only is he like a father, but we're told he's also like a mother, hen, who nurtures her chicks. Does that mean we should think of God as actually like a chicken? <laughs> no. There's a quality of God we're supposed to see there, a caring, nurturing quality that we often associate with mothers, with the feminine. It's interesting, this is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to the fathers. I'm not giving a Father's Day message, except I will say it's always been fascinating to me that within the scripture, <laughs> fascinating and a little bit distressing, and I pointed this out to a friend of mine who's been a pastor for 25 years, and he said, I never saw that, and now I will never unsee that. <laughs> and this is what I told him. I said, you cannot find a good example of a father in the pages of scripture. It's weird. You can find good examples of mothers, like literal good examples of mothers. Bathsheba actually seems to have been a good mother. Hannah was a good mother. Mary was a good mother. Joseph might have been a good father. He's the only one we possibly get to, but you know what's interesting? We have no idea because you know what we hear about Joseph as a father? Nothing. <laughs> He seems to disappear somewhere after, you know, Jesus is somewhere around Jesus' 12th year, probably. Maybe he died. But we don't ever hear about how Joseph was as a father. David was a terrible father. Solomon, horrible father. Abraham, really problematic father. Jacob, one of the worst fathers. <laughs> Isaac, bad father. It's really hard. The greatest, Moses... Kind of iffy. Noah? Uh, let's not even talk about Noah. It's really hard. You go through the fathers in Scripture, not one of them is held up as a model, as an example of fatherhood. They may be held up as models of other things. Moses is called the most righteous of his generation, which is an interesting relative term, by the way, in a, in a day when it just told us that everybody was horrible. But nonetheless... Nonetheless, we have these other things we hold up. David is called a man after God's own heart, but he certainly didn't do well with his kids. And you've got to wonder why that is. There's certainly somewhere in all the history there was something that God could have said, this, this guy was actually pretty decent. At least I hope this is true. Because the only conclusion they can come to is either that being a father is completely impossible and why do we even try? And I don't think that's the conclusion we should come to. Because I feel like in my own life I've known people who were good fathers. So it can't be that. So I think the only other possibility is this. God wants to say something really clearly in the pages of Scripture, and he wants to say, you know who the only example of a father that you should worry about is? Is God. And again, that's not to say God is male, but it is to say he is, in the things that we equate with a good father, we equate with God, or should equate with God. He provides, he protects, he loves, he cares. So even though we're not talking about fatherhood tonight, that's, the, that's it. That's my Father's Day message for this evening. 
we are going to talk about God. I will say this too. I have a little bugaboo about Father's Day messages in churches. There's a thing that churches do, and I'm not sure why we got into this habit. Generally on Mother's Day, churches honor mothers, and on Father's Day, churches yell at fathers. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why that is the habit we're in, but I don't want to do that. So we're just going to, we're going to go and talk about God. And then they wonder why the fathers don't want to come to church. That's right. All right. But we know that God is spirit. We know that he's neither male nor female. He doesn't have a body. He is a spirit. John, Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 24, in the middle of a theological argument with a really bright, smart woman who's arguing theology with him, he says to her, God is spirit. And those who worship God will worship in spirit. Uh, John, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, then says in 1 John, we know that God is spirit case that was ever a question. It's really not. wasn't a question to the Israelites before that, but there they are laid out. For those of us in the evangelical world who like clear propositional statements, there they are. So we know he's spirit. There's a whole lot more that we know. So I want to start with this. There's one thing that I think it kind of is over everything else. There's one thing about God I think you have to understand before we even discuss any of the other characteristics about God. This one thing adds the oomph. It's kind of the, the secret. It's kind of the, the key and the power to everything else we're going to share about God. Everything else that there is to know about God, will, you will know better if you can begin to wrestle with, and it may be something you have to wrestle with, this very, very first statement about who God is. The thing that defines God in all of his characteristics the thing that runs through everything else that we know about him is that he is other. Now, let me explain what that means. It means he's not like you. And he's not like me. It means that in some important way, he is just different from anything else in the whole universe. All the things we're going to be able to see about God, it's important to understand that while, while it is useful, we can understand that these are things about God because we see them in other people, it's also very important to understand that in a really significant way, every characteristic that we know about God is an approximation of who God actually is because in a really significant way, God is unlike anything else in the universe. Anything else in the universe. We are made in his image. But you know that phrase comes from a, a king would make a statue in his image and he would put it in the, in the capital of his city or he would put it in a city that was on the outposts of his kingdom. And when people saw that statue, that would remind them that they were supposed to honor the king that was represented by that statue. But to what degree is that statue really like the king? Not a lot. It's in his image it looks like him. It shares some characteristics with him. And the better the artist, the closer the image. So we can say that humans were made very well in the image of God because the artist was perfect. But even so, the distinction between a statue that's unmoving and gray and the colorful, three-dimensional, active, living, dynamic king is pretty large. And so it is with us and God. In case there's any question about that, God says it over and over in the scriptures. At one point, he says it outright. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. 
I am not like you. Now, we're going to talk about ways in which he is like us. And, and the only way we can understand him is by grasping certain characteristics that are like him. But to start, before we get there, you'll understand that. You'll be able to say, well, I know what this looks like, so I know that's what God looks like. But you really have to wrestle with the idea that no matter, that no matter what we say there, the point is, yes, there is something similar. There is a resemblance. And yet... The more you dig, the more you'll see that God is other. In fact, the way to think about this is that every characteristic of God is perfect and it is completely him. See, when we talk about characteristics of us, they're pieces of who we are. Like if we say of somebody, that person is a good person. We all know that means that person is not always good, don't we? (laughs) Or even if we say negatively, we say, that person is an angry person. We know that is not all that defines that person. We know that that person is a lot of things and, and, and a lot of pieces and is kind of incomplete. And we talk about as people wanting to be balanced because we could be off balance. But that is simply a recognition that none of our characteristics are fully who we are. Part of the mystery of God is that every single characteristic is a complete definition of who he is, even though he is also so much more. It is never just sort of a piece. Another way to look at it is to say that that God, when we say he is one way, we're not simply saying he is the best at this, meaning he is better at this than everybody else, whatever this characteristic is. We're going to say that a lot as we talk about these characteristics in a second. But if what you think we're saying is simply that God is better than all other people, you're missing the point. What we're actually saying is that characteristic that we all try to emulate He is that characteristic. We only even know that characteristic exists because God exists. God did not take this abstract characteristic and seek to be the best at it. We see God and we say, well, God appears to be like this. And so we're going to try to be like that. And all of it is who God is. God's not balanced. It makes no sense to talk about God as balanced. God is extreme in everything. But it's because he's perfect. It's because he's complete. So it's interesting. There is a word in scripture for this otherness. It comes up a lot. But we haven't defined it very well as pastors, I think, over the years. It's a word that's hard to define. My understanding is one of the best ways to define it is to call it otherness. Is to say this is the, this is the completion, the perfection, the uniqueness of God in the universe. And it's the word Holy. When holy is used to speak of God, we've gotten in this habit of thinking the word holy simply means moral and ethical. And that we mean that God is somehow more moral, more ethical, more pure in that sense, in his morals and ethics than the rest of the world. Again, it makes no sense to speak of God that way. It may shock you to hear this, but God does not follow any particular moral or ethical code. God is the moral and ethical code that we try to follow. Do you understand the difference? It's a big difference. To say God is better at doing the right things is missing the point that God is everything we think is right. And we are trying to be more like that. Any ethical code, any moral code we come up with is simply an attempt to be like God in a positive way. God doesn't have to do that because he is God. (laughs) Because it's already done. 
the, the idea of holy, this idea of otherness. And this is a word, it, it literally, uh, in the Hebrew, the word holy means called out or set apart. And I think what it, what, the way it's really used in Scripture is that day, idea of set apart, it means just very apart. <laughs> it means so unique, so consecrated, so different from you. This is why so much of the Old Testament is about the distance from God of humans. Look at the temple and how it was set up to communicate to the worshipers how far apart from God they were. They were not allowed to, as they entered into the temple, they had to cleanse themselves over and over and over. And the further they go into the temple, the more they had to cleanse themselves until in the very middle of the temple, the only person ever allowed in there is one person, somebody who has been set apart completely for this job, whose whole life is to remain consecrated and holy and other for this whole entire job. And even that person with all his holiness and otherness has to once a year consecrate himself, cleanse himself, and then tie a rope around himself so that when he enters the Holy of Holies, if he offends God by his lack of otherness, they can pull him out when he's dead. You say, where's the grace? We'll get there. But I want you to understand that part of what God wanted to teach the Israelites, along with teaching them about his love, was that he wanted them to understand how different they were from him and how different he was from them. And so the whole temple is about that. Yeah, the gospel bridges all that, brings us to him. But if we lose sight of the fact in that, that God is still other, it makes us less amazed by the gospel. We are to approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence. Amen. I'm not saying we should think because of God's otherness that we should be afraid. The gospel teaches us no. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. We are not to be afraid of God as believers. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be in awe of him. It doesn't mean we shouldn't recognize he is completely other. So we have this word holy in scripture. It's a fascinating thing about the use of the word holy in Scripture. There are two places, once in the Old Testament, at least two places, possibly more, once in the Old Testament and once in the New, where we see these, these heavenly creatures who are surrounding God, and they sing, are singing to God. And what they say, according to Revelation and Isaiah both, is they say, holy, holy, holy. And you think, okay, well, that makes a good song. We've all sung that hymn. And they repeated it three times because it was nice. And it fit the, ream, the rhyme and the scheme or something. It's not so. Really fascinating thing about that. So here's an interesting thing about the Hebrew language. They don't have any superlatives. So a superlative is a word like very. So we say, you are very smart. Right? And that means you're not only smart, but you're especially smart. We say, you are really smart. You are super smart. You are super incredible smart. These are all superlatives that we would use to emphasize that what we mean when we say that is we mean that a lot. Well, the Hebrews don't have superlatives. What they do in their language when they want to use a superlative is they simply repeat the word. I'll give you an example. Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Joseph. Remember I told you jo Jacob was a terrible father? One of the things he's, he produced in his children, such a resentment of Joseph through his favoritism of Joseph that they literally wanted to kill him. And so they throw Joseph into this pit. And what the Hebrew scripture says is, it's probably translated in your Bible, they threw Joseph into a deep pit. That makes sense. That's a good translation because that is what it was. It was a pit that was deep. But the actual Hebrew reads like this. They threw Joseph into a pit pit. Why repeat the word? Because it wasn't just a pit. It was a pit pit. It was a deep 
pit. So you'll see superlatives. You'll see that throughout the Hebrews. You'll see it used twice. It's kind of excessive to go more than twice. Like if, you know, and if we're like you are really, really super incredibly, outrageously, abundantly smart, then people stop listening to you because you're just saying too many superlatives. So in the Hebrew culture, you just usually only say two. It's really rare to see three. And then you come to these creatures singing to God, and they say, you're not just holy. You're holy, holy. And you're not just holy, holy. You're holy, holy, holy. You're a pit, pit, pit. (laughs) You're a deep, deep, deep holiness. You're an other, other, other. You are set apart and apart and apart. God is holy, holy, holy. Now, let's talk about some of the characteristics to which this applies. And what does this apply to? Everything. (laughs) So what are some ways in which God is just completely different from anything we've experienced and anything that we are and anyone that we know? Number one, he's eternal. You know, when you talk to people about God and you say that God is eternal, people say, that doesn't make any sense. And you, and you say, why not? And they say, because it doesn't exist. Nothing in the universe is eternal. And you say, right, because God is holy. <laughs> because he's not like anything else in the universe. And one of the things that makes him completely set apart is that he has been around literally forever, since before the creation of time. And he will exist forever past the creation of time. He's not just eternal in that he lives forever. He's eternal in that he had no beginning. You know, it's fascinating that in the, in the world of origins, in the world of science, we try to figure out origins. We want to know the origin of the universe. And that's a reasonable thing. I think God has made us inquiring people. We want to know how did the universe begin. The problem with science trying to figure out the origin of the universe or the origin of Earth or the origin of anything is really simple. It's that science doesn't deal with origins ever. One of the things that science has taught us is there are no origins. Nothing is created or destroyed. In the universe as we live in it, nothing comes from nothing. The problem with that is the other thing that science tells us is that nothing exists forever. Now, if you take those two together, that nothing exists forever and nothing comes from nothing, you come to a problem that scientifically and logically, the truth should be that nothing ever exists. And yet, here we are. So I'm not saying science is flawed. I'm saying it's limited. And one of the limitations is it can only deal with things it can see and replicate and study. And origins is something that we do not have any experience with. But the fact that we don't have any experience with it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Again, logically, it has to be true that either something came from nothing or something existed forever. Those are the only options. Both of those are non-scientific conclusions. But they're logical conclusions. For the record, the Greeks had no trouble believing that everything came from something which existed forever. To them, that seemed the most logical answer. The idea that something would come from nothing, to them, made no sense whatsoever. You can argue the philosophy of that, but that's where they came from. So the idea that there was something that was eternal was not, was not at least a logical or, to them, scientific impossibility. Nor is it to us, 
but it is, again, a demonstration of how God is different from who we are. And when we try to think of what eternity means, we find we can't get there, don't we? We find that we can't really grasp what that is. And I bring it up as the first example because it's the easiest one to see how other it is. But there's more. We're also told that God is omnipresent. But this actually makes sense with eternal. If God is eternal, that actually means he is every time, right? He's every time. But he's not every time. If he's every time and he's eternal, he also must be everywhere. Because if there's a place that he's not, that makes him less than eternal. And this is what scripture tells us, that God is everywhere. Now, you make it to mysteries and say, but isn't hell where God isn't? And I would say, well, yes. And you would say, but didn't you just say God was everywhere? And I would say, yes. And you would say, you're telling me both are true at once? And I would say, yes. And you would say, that sounds impossible. And I would say, it sounds like nothing in our experience. (laughs) Sure, there are mysteries. We'll get to that. But we are told that God is everywhere and every time. In other words, just simply put, there is no place that God is not. We're also told that God is omniscient and omnipotent. Now, these are nice big Greek words. Literally, they come from the Greek. And one of the things that the Greeks were fond of was defining really big ideas in, in they may look like big words, but compared to the ideas, they're really small words, really, really sort of simple words put together. Omniscient means that God knows everything. Omnipotent means that God is all-powerful. But again, if you think about the otherness and the completeness of God, this is kind of a foregone conclusion. If I say to you that God is perfect in all the things that he is, that every characteristic he holds defines him completely, and then I say to you one of the things that God is is smart, and then I ask you what does it mean to be completely perfectly, unerringly, forever smart, and you will eventually come to the conclusion, well, you must have to know everything. And that is correct. (laughs) That is what God is. He is holy smart. His smart is other. It's set apart. He is smart, smart, smart. Right, exactly. He's not just smart. He's smart, smart, smart. He is set apart in his smartness. And what sets him apart? That it's without gap. It's complete. It's perfect. That means he knows everything. Same is true of his power. If I say to you, what defines God? And you say, he's powerful. And I say, how powerful? And you say, well, if he's perfect in everything, then he's perfectly powerful. What does that mean? It means that that he is completely all powerful. See how all these things are guided by this idea, this characteristic that it is completely who God is. There's no gap in it. And if I said to you that you as a creation of his, do you have the ability to make him less all-powerful, you would probably say, no. Because if you did, guess what that means? It means he's not all-powerful. It also means, by the way, that you're more powerful than he is. (laughs) Right? You cannot make him more powerful. You cannot make him less powerful. The person that can make the most powerful person less powerful is the most powerful person. So God cannot be made less powerful. Can you make him less smart? Can you make him dumber? There are people I've met who felt like they could make anybody dumber, but I don't think that's true of God. Can you make him smarter? Again, there are people I've met who I felt like could make anybody smarter. But that's not true of God. 
Nothing you do changes that. Can you make him more or less eternal? No, that would mean you could kill him. <laughs> and not only kill him, but make him cease to exist. And once again, the definition of God does not allow for that. So these are things that are completely who he is, and you can't change them. You can't undo that. Now, so far, everything I've shared could in one sense be true of a lot of gods across the, 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 the span of religions in the world. Now, it's not true, say, of Zeus or a lot of the pantheon of gods where clearly they're not all-knowing and they're not all-powerful. Many of them can be killed and defeated and have stories about their, their destruction. Even those of you who like Marvel, the great Thor and Odin. The great prophecy in the, in the Norse mythology of Thor and Odin is that Thor gets swallowed by a serpent and uh, Odin, I th uh, yeah, Thor gets swallowed by a serpent and Odin gets killed by a, a wolf, I think. So they both die. And these are the great gods. These are the all-powerful gods. But there are other gods where this may be true but, there's, but are not true. So the, 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 the Buddhist world kind of has an idea of God or, or you may have uh, pantheists, people who believe that all of nature is God. And so they would say that God is everywhere. That in the collective sense, God knows everything because he is all of the knowledge of the universe. In the collective sense, he's eternal because he is even the nothingness that came before the somethingness. So in a sense, this matches everything. But there is one other really important aspect of the God that we understand, and that's that he's personal. That means he's a person, not a human, not a male or female, but a person. As we understand the idea of person, he has personality. He has will. He has the ability to relate. We'll get to that in a second. God is personal. This is important in Scripture. God relates to all his people in personal ways. Now, I think it's clear, and it should be understood, that, again, the way Scripture is written is so that we can understand him. So the descriptions of how he feels and the way he thinks are often just ways that we can relate to. And I think probably this should apply to everything else we've said. And even in his personhood, he is completely other and perfect. In other words, he is the perfection of what a person should be. And because we don't know what that looks like in our personal experience, it's still other than we would completely grasp. But nonetheless, we have a sense of what that means. That there's emotion, that there's motivation, that there's action, that there's decision. And this is how he's described to us in Scripture. And as someone who's personal, personal, oh, I left, I left like the one I was building up to out of my notes. It's okay. It's not going to show up on the screen, but we're going to get there. Well, now I got to decide if I want to put it before or after this one that I just brought up. Let's put it before. Whoops. Scripture is very, very clear. It's very weird. This is not in the list because this is what I was building towards. It's very clear. The scripture tells us something. And, and remember all the discussion we just had about the fact that you can't make God less powerful because he's perfect in it. It, it, it defines him entirely. You cannot make him less smart because he's perfect in it. It defines him entirely. And that's the idea that God is loving. It's interesting. Scripture does talk about God being loving. But when John, one of the people who defined his whole identity as being someone that was loved by God, when he decides to talk about God, he does not choose to say God is loving. You know what he chooses to say? God is love. 
Now, don't be confused. We've already acknowledged God is personal. We're not saying that God is this ethereal emotion that we all feel, that we call love. I didn't get that. <laughs> well, that's too bad, Siri, because you're not personal. Siri wouldn't get that, but you will. That's so weird. <laughs> we don't mean that. Again, remember, our understanding of love is simply an approximation, a seeking of the perfection of love that God is. John doesn't say God is loving because he wants to remind us that any characteristic of God is fully defining of who he is. That when we say God loves you, we do not mean he loves you like if you've experienced even in your best experience of love on this world, he means God loves you in an otherly way. Not in a way that is less than the love you know, but in a way that is more perfect than the love you know. One way to think of otherness is to distance it all. To say that when it says that God is is, you know, really smart. He's not smart in the way I am. He doesn't have common sense and street smarts, you know, or, or when it says God is all powerful. Yeah, but he's really limited. He can't really do anything for me. There's, we can kind of say he's other means. It doesn't mean what I think it means. It means less. That's the wrong way to go. Every perfection of God is greater, bigger, and better than that really corrupted false idea that you have in your head of what that is. Everything that you can think about the justice of God, for example, we know that God is just, but we tend, to, we tend to push it away a little bit and say, but God doesn't understand about the poor and the oppressed and the people that need help. Well, why do you care about the poor and the oppressed and the people that need help? Because God is that way, and so you are trying to be that way. And when it comes to love, it's the same thing. That we look at God's being loving and we push it away a little bit and we say, well, it's not affectionate. Would you say that anyone who loved you without affection was loving you? You wouldn't really. So don't, don't think that that's the otherness of God. It's that God's affection is pure. It's not self-interested and it's not corrupted by selfishness. And think about this. If the fact that these characteristics of God cannot be changed because they are integral to who they are, you have to understand that is also true of his love. Scripture calls grace sort of the outworking of his love. It's sort of the, the fact that God desires to do good to us and he has the power to do good to us, which is really what love is. I want good for you and I'm going to make it happen. And the fact that God has both of those and that he expresses that to you, that grace, that, that is his love. That's just the outworking. I think they're really the same concept in God. But one is our, how we see it and the other is the characteristic. But in that, it's so important to recognize you cannot change it any more than you can change his power or his smarts. Because if you think that you can say, well, God doesn't, you know, I know God loves me, but today he doesn't love me as much because I really messed up. Then what you're doing is you're saying that God is not perfect in his love. He's not holy in his love. He's just like you and me. Because the honest truth is we're terrible lovers. And we know it at our best. We're so bad that when we find somebody who's, you know, a D plus in loving, it feels great. <laughs> we're really not good at it. We're self-interested. We're self-motivated. It's very hard. And I'm not here to condemn us for that. And it's like saying we're not good at omnipotence either. We're not good at omniscience either. Well, that's true because you're not other in that sense, we'll get to holy for us when we get to people, because it also is used of us later.
But you're not other. You're not perfect in all these things the way that God is. God is perfect in love. And that doesn't mean that somehow he loves you in a way which is so different from you that you don't recognize it and it doesn't feel good. I hate that. When people say love is not an emotion, it's an act of your will. Because we're trying to encourage people to do loving things even when they don't feel it. But the problem with that is that when we say that, then we tell them after that, hey, God loves you. And they think, great. What does that mean? He has no emotional connection to me. It's just an act of his will. It's more than that. The scripture defines God's love in emotional terms. And again, are those emotions other than ours? More perfect, more pure to such a degree that we can't quite understand them? No doubt. But are we supposed to understand them to the degree we can as being similar to our emotions? We are. And that's the trick about God. That as we learn these things about God, we are to accept that they are similar to what we understand because God is not using these words to confuse us. He's using them to connect with us. But we're also to understand that he is more perfect and better in those things than we are. I think we are afraid to believe that God might be more loving, more precious, more perfect and better than we think he is because we don't want to be disappointed. But God is the only creation he is other in this sense. This is another way in which he is other. He will never disappoint you. Now, you may be disappointed on this earth. And you may blame God for it. But scripture tells us it's actually never because he's been faithless. It's not actually because he's ever been wrong. It's because we don't see it. When we stand face to face with him, I think there will be a shock. You know, I hear a lot of pastors talk about the shock we'll experience when we see Jesus. And a lot of times it's a guilt thing. They're like, you're going to be shocked about when you see Jesus is how horrible you are. Which, there's some truth to that, I suppose. But I don't think that's it. They're like, when you get to see Jesus, you'll be shocked at how how much sin you've committed. You'll be shocked at how how holy he is. All all that's kind of true, but I think the overwhelming thing when you see Jesus is we'll be shocked at how much better he is than we thought. We'll be shocked at how much he loves and delights in us because he kept telling us that, but we didn't really believe him. I've been preaching that for 25 years and I still fully expect to be surprised (laughs) because I think I just can't quite grasp it. That it's that good, that he's that holy, that he's that other. This is the God that we're trying to find. It's just really vastly important that we understand that God loves you with an infinite love. And he has from before the moment he created you. And he will till forever. I was going to say till. There's no till. <laughs> I was going to say the end of time. But no, past that. It's infinite. And there's nothing you can do to change it. We, it is such a waste of a Christian's time to spend their time trying to figure out how to get God to love them. It is absolutely a waste of your time. It's a waste even of a non-Christian's time. God loves you. He decided to die for you because he loves you. All right. Let's wrap up with a couple more. We'll just, we'll just tie a couple other things in here. He is relational. Now, here's what's interesting. This is an interesting one. God is relational because he wants us to be relational. And again, this is something we get from him. He treats us with relation. He calls us to relationship. He doesn't call us to... Uh, you know, a, a set of rules and regulations. Even the Israelites to me gave the rules and regulations. It's very clear. All the metaphors, all the analogies, all the pictures he uses are relational. He accuses them adultery when they go to idolatry. Why? Because it's about a relationship. He says to them, I want you to follow these rules. Why? Because I am your God and you are my people. 
right? It's not just about rules. It's about the relationship. He's relational. But here's the challenge. Here's the philosophic challenge for those of you so inclined. If everything of God is eternal and always and other, how was God eternally relational before anybody else existed for him to relate with? It's a good question. Scripture provides an answer, a very surprising one. If God is relational, and that is not only a characteristic of him, but actually defines him in the way we've talked about everything else, then you would have to say in some sort of sense that God is not just relational, but he is relationship. And scripture tells us this really surprising thing about God, that he is a relationship of three persons in one God. Now, let's be clear. As we're talking about the nature of God, scripture is clear. He is one God. He is not multiple gods. Whatever else you hear me say, Scripture is super clear about that. Over and over, he's one God. But he's also three persons in one God. And it's three eternal persons, which is fascinating to me because it does explain how a God could be perfectly loving, perfectly relational for all of eternity with nothing else in the universe because he was relational and loving within that trinity. And you may say, I don't understand the Trinity. Explain it to me. And I say, we're going to talk about the Trinity next week. But let me give you a warning before we talk about it next week. It does deserve a whole Sunday. But before we do it, let me give you a warning. There are a million analogies out there. There are people who come up with all sorts of illustrations. Some people say the Trinity is like an egg. And you've got the yolk and you've got the the outer white and you've got the shell. Well, the problem with that is, yes, that's one egg, but that's three different parts of the egg. Those three different parts are distinct and different, and you can separate them. And the Trinity, we're told, is not that way. You can't separate the Father from the Son from the Holy Spirit. They're not three parts. They're all the same. Each of them is fully God. To make the egg analogy work, you'd have to say the yolk was completely the egg, and none of us are going to say that. You'd have to say the shell was completely the egg, and none of us are going to say that. Jesus is completely the God. The Holy Spirit is completely God. The Father is completely God. They're not different parts. Some people will say, well, it's like this. I am a father, and I'm a son, and I'm a husband. So I'm three in one. Nonsense. That's just three different roles. That's not three different persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do have different roles, but that's not all they are. They're three different persons. If my wife could say she was married to a different person than was the father of her children, that would be a different story. (laughs) That would be a different story. It would be a soap opera. The truth is this. For all the analogies that people give. Oh, one more. Water. Steam, water, and ice. No. That's just the same thing in three different forms. But it's never all three at once. The Holy Spirit is not God in three different forms. Here's the problem. There is not an analogy or an illustration that works. And you know why? Because we've never seen anything like the Trinity in the whole universe. There is nothing that is three in one. Now, I will tell you, there's some interesting things science has come upon. A light is both a photon and a wave. And if you ask a scientist, they'll tell you that that shouldn't be. Something is either a photon or a wave. It shouldn't be both. But it is both. That's interesting. That gets closest. But that's still not God. (laughs) The truth is, we don't know what the Trinity is because God is so other that he is this creature of three in one 
that we see nowhere else in the universe. And that's why no analogy will fit. Now, there may be things like light or like the egg if you push it or like whatever you want. There may be things that approximate it, but very badly, just like everything else. So we'll talk about the Trinity next week because I think it's relevant. But the point I want to close with is this. Evangelicals have this. I, I, I've been an evangelical most of my life. I'm not sure the term is useful anymore, but if it was, I guess I still am one. But, but here's what I would say. Evangelicals, one thing that evangelicals have gotten in the habit of doing in their attempt, understandably, to make sure that people understand who God is, to make sure that people understand how important God is, to make sure that we are clear on the character and the nature of God, to make sure that the gospel is not obscured, all good intentions. In order to make sure that all this is true, we have done this weird thing in that we have decided that the best way to present God is to remove all mystery. There is no mystery about God, we say. We can give you a good illustration of the Trinity, we say. We can explain to you what it means that God is eternal, we say. We can give you all the answers to why evil exists, even though God is here. We can do all of that, and there is no mystery left. And the problem with that is that Scripture seems to really want to tell us that one characteristic of God is that he is also mystery because he is other. What evangelicals have taught a little bit is that God is just like us. And that is a problem. And in an attempt to make God accessible to us, we have made him just like us. And it would be much better, better to recognize that God is not accessible to us except that he chooses to be. But as our brains go, he's other. I want to read, I, I told you about these stories in Isaiah and Revelation. I want to read the one in Revelation because I want you to feel the mystery. I want you to feel the awe. Because this picture that we're given is not one that we can break down and say, here's what it means, here's what's going on. It's one you hear and you go, whoa, here's the story. And before the throne, there was what looks like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have being. In our quest for certainty, we sometimes try to do away with mystery. And a God who holds no mystery and provides no awe is no better than Zeus or Odin or Thor. Our God is other. He is unimaginable in so many ways. And we are encouraged even in scripture not to freeze him in our imagination. In other words, scripture knows that we have to try to picture him. We have to try to understand at times. But if that, and so it's okay in a sense to put God in a box, but only if you allow that box to be busted open when it needs to be. One of the problems with graven images of God, which we're told not to do, is that they freeze our current imagination of who God is in our head. And scripture wants to say, understand that God is unimaginable. So you imagine in one way for a moment, but let that be 
for a moment. In our little part of the world here in New Mexico, my father was a doctor, and he worked with a lot of Native Americans, and sometimes he literally would get paid in chickens. And I remember that, that at one point he came home with a, a, like a sand painting, which is really cool, and I said, how come you don't get more of those? And he said, well, the truth is the person who gave me this isn't really honoring what sand paintings are about. And the reason, he says, I've actually gotten lots of sand paintings as payment, but you'll never see them. And I said, why? He said, because the whole point of a sand painting is that they do not freeze it in place. He said, they do a sand painting on the ground. And then when it's done and you've admired it, they destroy it. He said, because there's something about the momentary beauty that doesn't get locked in place, that is actually more eternal. The feeling that you have in your soul for a beauty which transcends understanding, the desire you have for something bigger than you can comprehend, the, 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 the hope and fear that you have, that it can never be true, but the hope that you have, that there's something exciting about the universe which will never grow old or stale or boring or disappointing, all of that is your longing for this one true, unimaginably good God. If you are disappointed with the God that your particular religious background has brought you, I want to suggest that the chances are this is simply a failure of imagination on the part of your teachers, and now on you. God is holy. And as we're told in this passage we read, he's created all things in his image. And so the universe does speak plainly of him. And it does speak to us of these things, but we have to remember their approximations. And we have to take heart in the fact that the things we're really seeing that we want are permanent and eternal and don't change. There is no fickleness or entropy in God. Somewhere beneath the corruption of everything in this world, everything speaks of the beauty and glory of God if we just know how to look for it. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.